Coming up next, the looking watches. Ready, player one. Welcome to The Lookening. My name is Nathan Alverson. I'm your humble, obedient host. Agent Provocateur, as I like to say now for some reason. I don't know whether I actually like to say it or not, but I sure do say it sometimes. None other times I don't. But I always say I'm your humble and obedient host. Now over there, right over there, going clockwise from me, we got yes. a man. A man. A myth. A myth. A legend. All of those things. A man who's been a bit of a grouch lately on The Bookening. I have. He was the prosecutor in our last episode. He prosecuted old Ready Player One. I am recording from inside a trash can today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Reoccurring dream I had, which I think maybe I talked about, I've talked about on cutscenes from Bookening before, but I don't know if it's ever actually made it on. I used to have a reoccurring dream where Oscar the Grouch would be on a horse in his trash can. He'd ride up to me. I want to say that... <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever heard this. Grover? Not Grover. What was the guy's name? There was a man that lived on Sesame Street. The, the African-American? Yes. <laughs> was it Stan or something like something that? Something like that. Carl, I want to say. But, yeah. Um, I think he might have been on a horse too, but we'd go for horse rides and a good time was had by all. Huh. Had that dream at least twice. Brandon Chastain, a man who would look very good on a horse. Thank Even better if he was wearing a Napoleon hat. No, thank you. Don't you think Brandon would look good in a Napoleon <laughs> Absolutely. hat? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what I think of this. Of the three of us in this room, I, I dare say Brandon would look the best in a big Napoleon hat. We need a listener to comp that for us. We I think we a, need a listener to do a full-on oil painting. An of oil it. painting of Brandon, of Brandon holding a Kimbo. on a white steed <laughs> yeah. in a Napoleon hat. In a Napoleon hat. Hey, let's do it. Yeah, let's going to be firing my pistols, though. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make it happen, folks. He's a very Napoleonic gentleman. Not in that he's small and hates life and wants to conquer the world. Have a complex. Some, sometimes, <laughs> recently. Yeah. Easy, Nathan. But no, just because he's he can conquer the world. He's that powerful. He's like all the good things about Napoleon. Wow. What were the good things about Napoleon? He's smart. He thinks I'm sure there's many. He's strategic. He's an interesting character he's in an War and Peace. Character in War and Peace. I always find a way to bring it back to Tolstoy, baby. <laughs> yeah, you sure do. That yep. kind of backfired for you last episode. It sure did. <laughs> pretty pretty badly. I listened to that. <laughs> and the reason for that backfire, sitting right over there, what kind of hat would Jake look good in? Huh. That's a good question. It's the ball cap. Just well, a ball yeah, cap. The, the, the ultimate hat for Jake, I want to say a top hat. Let's make this guy even taller. <laughs> top hat. You know? Look like Jack Skellington or something. Abe Lincoln. Abe Lincoln. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he kind of had those Abe Lincoln rhetorical powers last week. Didn't yeah, he? yeah, he did. He was Abe Lincoln. He did, yeah. You were Frederick Douglass. Not Fredless, Frederick Douglass. <laughs> Stephen Douglass. <laughs> uh, Stephen Douglass. Stephen Douglass, yeah. <sighs> yeah. The southerner, racist. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob Menzel, he's a pastor. He's a master of reading. He's a fine gentleman, much beloved by uh, bookening listeners, by Sound of Sanity listeners, by parishioners at Clearnote Church, by his family, and others, and at all, really. Is there a man that's ever met Jake Menzel and hasn't loved him? Yes. 
We met some guys at Barnes and Nobles the other day. They took to Jake right away. Yeah, um, it was fun. So Jake, I'm sorry, folks, if you can hear the lack of energy in my voice, I'm happy to be here. Always excited to talk about Ready Player One. Always excited to do the looking with my good friends, Brandon and Jake. But uh, it's just been a kind of a long day. I don't know. It's uh, it's not my first podcast today, folks. And podcasts take energy. Yeah. What kind of hat should I wear, guys? What kind of hat would I, what would be the ultimate Nathan hat? The ultimate Nathan hat. I think a big, um, like a... Elizabethan crown. <laughs> like the, what the king would wear? <laughs> yeah, like a like crown? Like, like a I was thinking wear. more like the, the soldiers at Buckingham Palace, you know? Oh, the, that would be a good hat. Like a big, like, Russian poofy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah a big it, Russian. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. Like a Kazakh. A Kazakh. A Kazakh. That's what I, I was looking for. Okay, there we go. A Kazakh. <laughs> if somebody wants to do a painting of Jake in a top hat <laughs> and a painting of me in a Kazakh and a painting of Brandon in a Napoleon hat, then... <laughs> I think I'm going to get the best painting here. <laughs> <laughs> There's no question about that. <laughs> well, I think I imagine Jake like looking around, like doing something kind of cool and city-like. Putting and, on the Ritz. Yeah, putting on the Ritz. <laughs> like on <Young> Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And what am I wearing? Oh, I'm wearing a Kazakh, so I'm just going to be looking grouchy in the cold somewhere. <laughs> manly, manly in the cold. Manly in the cold. Well, guys, let's do some donor shout-outs. We have actually got some new donors to shout-out today, at least one new donor. Nice. Happy we are to do it. Now, do, new donor, we don't always record all these episodes in order, so you may hear some episodes after this where you're not shouted out. And you for will, that. in fact, hear every Remains of the Day episode. Yes, Without We've, being shouted out. That is very true. Those haven't been released yet, have no, they? No, they haven't. Oh, <laughs> for some reason I thought they had. Let's do it in the order that results in us saying the new person last. Let's do it. What do you think that about that? Way. Yeah. All right, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's just, this is just be a classic clean. We've done some rather silly donor shout outs lately, but this is just going to be a classy one because I'm all about the class. So let's just start with Professor X. Professor X. Thank you for your support, Professor X. We truly love you. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds, Brandon. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Uh, Nathan, not me, Jake. Nathan, not Nathan. Benny and Dana Tiberius, Brandon. The lovebirds. Benny? Is that what you said? No. Yeah. Benjamin, or does he go by Benny? We never called him Benny before. He goes by Benny today. Hey, Benny. (laughs) Hey, Benny. And Dana Tiberius. Benny. The lovebirds. The lovebirds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Maya! This is supposed to be classy. Maya. Oh, sorry, sorry. Hey, Maya. Hey, Maya. How's it going, Maya? Mm. Good. Mm. Hi, Maya. Hello. My beloved mother, Beth. Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. John and Jill, the lovebirds. John and Jill, the lovebirds. And little baby Max. And little baby Max. Yes, thank you for remembering little baby Max. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. The inscrutable Jenny Z. The inscrutable Jenny Z. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Oh, sorry. Andrew, did I look at the wrong person? You did. Yes, Yes, I'm sorry. Andrew and Esther, (laughs) the lovebirds. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. All right. Oh, man, I don't know what to say about this lady. She seems like a nice lady. She's giving us money, so I'm happy about that. Her name is Lily. Her name is Lily, Brandon. Um, Of of the valley? Of the valley. (laughs) 
Do you think she'd like to go by Lily of the Valley on the booking? Is that a good appellation for her? Lily the I'm not sure. I don't know that I know anything about this Lily. She may be offended by that. Yeah, she may be. Uh, she seems like a classy gal. I mean, she's giving us money, so that'd be a pretty big clue to, as to her classy, classy Lily. Lily of the Valley. There we go. Lily of the Valley. All right, well, Lily of the Valley, thank you for supporting us. Somebody should shout her out. Whose turn is it to shout out Lily of the Valley? Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Brandon, why don't you shout out Lily of the Valley? Lily of the Valley. All right, thank you, Lily. You're a credit to women and whatever else you are. Flowers. Flowers. Yes, you're a flower among ladies, a flower among our patrons. You love East of Eden? Yeah. We love you. You got good taste, Lily. Yep. So thank you for supporting us, Lily of the Valley. All right, guys, that's donor shout-outs. Now, today, as we know, it's The Lookening. One of the, we're going to talk about movies. been talking about a lot of movies lately, me and Jake and the larger uni- Warhorn universe. All we do is talk about movies, it feels like. All right, well, Ready we'll Player One, fellas. We saw the movie. We went. We purchased our tickets. We walked in the theater. The film was projected on a screen. Yep. We watched it. It was entertaining. Uh-huh. Or was it? What did, we, what did we think? There were some sound issues with this screening, and I think they made the movie less enjoyable, actually. I'll get, that's my baggage for the movie, is that the sound was weird mixed like something from the from, top from from the beginning from of the, the very movie. beginning it was really just quiet yeah it's pretty lame yeah and then they ended up cutting the sound off right you know at the end during the big emotional speech at kind the of, end yeah, the sound just went cathartic. out for a little bit the lights came on early it was the audience cackled and booed and all that kind of stuff so did any of us try for a refund yeah it was too late i mean i yeah. just we probably could have gotten one but i just didn't feel like putting the energy into it plus i use movie pass so who cares i guess but yep. yeah but yeah. yeah so we saw this movie ready player one we saw it what would you guys think about ready player one the movie it was fun it was fine not blown away by it huh I wasn't blown away by it i had my hopes up for it to be a magical spielbergian experience and it you did not have a magical spielberg i did not have a magical spielbergian experience well why didn't you have a magical spielbergian experience jake because it wasn't a magical spielbergian movie you would have where did spielberg drop the ball it just wasn't. Maybe that's a hard question to answer. Maybe it, it, just it is didn't a have hard question. Je ne sais quoi or whatever. What's what I said to you in the parking lot? Because that's the only way I can sort of articulate it. Like there are things, there are decisions that were made that I wonder if. Well, what I missed, I was telling somebody tonight. My two favorite parts of the movie were the dumb billboard ads and stuff in the background that were playing futuristic type ads, like what you would have seen in Minority Report or in Back to the Future 2. Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of details that kind of make things fun and feel like a cool Spielberg movie, just sort of background details. And then it, there are a lot of references, but um, there wasn't anything that really hit me in the nostalgic feels, right. you know, like nothing that connected I will say I thought it was a mistake on Spielberg's part not to just embrace using his own filmography, which he does a little bit, but he should have used it more. Because really, when I think the 80s, I think Spielberg and not having that in there hurt it, I thought. Was there an E.T.? Not that I saw, but see, so many of the references were just crammed in. in. You're going to have to be like Wade Watts in in your basement watching the film frame by frame to catch all the references, Yeah, you know? The, the the so the other favorite scene that I or part that I had was the the Zimicus cube, mm-hmm. but that's only because it was an excuse to pull the Back to the Future music in. Yeah, well, know? we'll come back and discuss some of these things, but let's get Brandon's overall take on the movie. My overall take on the movie, <clears throat> just my general your general feelings, Brandon. Um, I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I, what I appreciated about the movie, and we'll talk more about this later, I'm sure, is the fact that I think the movie was trying to fix what was wrong with the book. So here's my thesis statement. Mm-hmm. Here's my, th- okay. you want my thesis yes, statement? Absolutely. Here's my thesis statement about this movie. So Jake's thesis <clears throat> statement, just to be clear, is the movie was okay, but it just didn't have that Spiel- Spielberg magic. Yeah, I just didn't have it. I yeah. don't know how to it's, put my Yeah, it didn't, it. it didn't quite live up to the Spielbergian magic. Okay, and then your wanted. thesis statement is, I'm sorry, go ahead. It didn't have that, it never hit that nostalgia. Yeah, I just didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm with you there. What was it? So my thesis statement, we watched this movie. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm with you and, so far. Yeah, we I, I saw it with our we eyes. We prove that thesis we statement. We didn't read it. We got we watched it. Evidence. So kind of like the book, I found myself enjoying parts of the movie. So when, when you're done reading something or you're done watching something, there's like a general, it's, it's like taste. It's mm-hmm. like a taste in your mouth, it's, but it's in your brain. I don't know how to describe it, mm-hmm. but you either like it or you didn't like yeah. it. And I didn't like it. Okay. And so I thought a lot about why I didn't like <laughs> okay. it. I think I appreciate Spielberg because what Spielberg wanted to do was fix what was wrong with the book. Mm-hmm. And in trying to fix what was wrong with the book, he just proved that Ernest Klein's uh, universe was poorly imagined and unworkable. Mm. That's my thesis statement. So you're just like... I'm taking the strong stance, but that makes for a more interesting thesis uh, statement. You're just like against the... You're just using this episode as another excuse to beat up more on the book. But that's... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's what it did for me, so... (laughs) That's fair. Yeah. I suppose. Okay. Um, My thesis statement was the movie was awesome. It had cars and... uh, King Kong. King Kong. And, they did uh, have the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. The, the T-Rex and Chuck. What was that thing that blew up and killed Nostromo or whatever his name was? Never Nostromo, yeah. I never did figure too. that out. Well, but, did you, uh, do you know what that was? The Holy Hand Grenade? No. What did she throw into Mechagodzilla to blow no, it up? No, I didn't know. It was like a I green didn't. tomato or an angry tomato? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I didn't no know what it was. But it was a reference to something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing it probably was, given yeah. the nature of the movie. Uh, I actually, uh, okay, I, I was being a little ironic there, folks. I don't know. It wasn't like the best movie ever. I think I might have enjoyed it more than you guys did. I definitely enjoyed it more than Brandon did, because he said it left a sour taste in his mouth and he didn't like it. But I think I enjoyed it maybe a little bit more than Jake did. I had a lot of fun with it. I enjoyed it. I did not think that it captured that Spielberg magic. Mm-mm. At all, really. I mean, it didn't give you the feeling of watching an old Amblin entertainment. I don't want to be this simplistic, but for me, some of that's just it being a computer-generated movie. Like, there's something very tactile about those old uh, movies that's just hard to get in a computer-generated world. That might be too easy of an answer for why it didn't have that magic. But for me... Jurassic Park has that magic, right? Yes. Well, and then Jurassic World, I think, had less of that magic because the, the dinosaurs... I don't have a problem with CGI. I usually like it, but... Well, Jurassic Park is the only one of those movies that had that magic. Mm-hmm. So Yes, agreed. Um, yeah. Even the Spielberg-directed second one didn't really have it, yeah. so... I would say it's... Is that the last one that's had the Spielberg magic? Jurassic Park? And Saving Private Ryan technically didn't have the Spielberg magic. No. <laughs> had some uh, quality filmmaking, but not a lot of magic. I liked Spielberg's War of the Worlds. Yeah. Pretty well, actually. And Did I you see the. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Did you see the BFG? No, I didn't. I didn't either. Did that have the Spielberg Ma- magic? Minority Report. Yes. Yes. Minority Report. But Where the Worlds is sent after Minority Report, right? Yeah. In terms it, of what's it, came, the... it came later, but I'm not. I mean, I saw War of the Worlds. I don't, I don't remember thinking it was special in the same 
So Minority Report might be your answer to the question for what's the most recent movie to have Spielberg magic. the kind of the Spielberg feeling to it. I think um, I think that's probably my answer. Which is what is the Spielberg magic? Just Indiana Jones. Yeah, I think the Spielberg magic e. is. We should define. If we're going to talk about Spielberg magic, yeah. we better define our terms here, fellas. What is the Spielberg magic? When I think of Spielberg magic, I think of the camera zooming in on someone's face slowly as as wonder or terror. Usually, wonder though sweeps over their face, and there's a shining light, and then we cut to their point of view, and we see some majestic or awe-filled, or whether it's the ark being opened, or it's spaceships and close encounters, or whether it's ET getting back on his ship it's the slow zoom in on the character that's what i think of when i think of spielberg magic i don't know whether that answers the question of what is spielberg magic you know what i think of i think of dumb things like uh et turning to chase yoda i know maybe that's a maybe that's a dumb thing because it's just a little comedic bit mm-hmm. yeah no you well, might be right there's a warmth to his storytelling too mm-hmm. He's a good storyteller. That's part of it, is he knows how to spin a yarn. Yeah. Um, and the pacing is good, and you're not expecting some deep philosophical insight into the world, mm-hmm. at least not until you get to Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List, right? which do actually have some pretty good deep philosophical insights into mm-hmm. the world. But even Saving Private Ryan is still, it's a Spielberg movie. Yeah. Like even with Jaws, it's some, yeah, you have the close-up of the sheriff's face, and then you see the shark. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, yeah. I'm with you there. So, there's some cinematic things that he does with the details, but also there's just a, a, a he loves the story he's telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite analogy for Spielberg is he's, I think he's art the modern day Dickens mm-hmm. in the sense that he's willing to tell, he's willing to be sentimental and cheesy if it helps tell his story yes. better. <laughs> and it's not this. So, Tim Burton kind of tried to do that with Alice in Wonderland. I never saw and it. And he kind of failed. Yeah. But Spielberg can just, you know, he can feed you what's kind of cheesy and goofy. There's a lot of goofiness to the Indiana Jones movies. Mm-hmm. But you go along with it because he's such a good storyteller. It's such a fun ride. Yeah, it's a fun ride. It's, it's like, that- it's like, it's the magic of. I went to Disney World in Orlando when I was a kid. And honestly, all I remember about it are the Spielberg things. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember sitting and watching the Indiana Jones. They had a whole Indiana Jones production. Stunt show kind of thing. Stunt yeah. show kind of thing. And I remember that. And there's a sense of wonder, like you were saying. With So if I think back to my childhood, like watching E.T., mm-hmm. you think about the flashlight and going out into the cornfields. Uh-huh. You think about the Reese's Pieces and him mm-hmm. coming in. It's very tactile images yeah. that are used to... Cr- kind of create yeah that sense of wonder and yeah. the well, bicycle the bicycle familiarity too the like you like elliot is a what kid can't identify with elliot yeah yeah he does his character and that's another thing with spielberg is and it's like it is, is it is kind of dickensian too mm-hmm. in the sense that his characters can be a little bit one dimensional but mm-hmm. also fully realized right yeah so and we're gonna see that with dickens dickens does the exact same thing and i don't know how they do it but they do it really well the Goonies is a good example of that. Like every character in the Goonies is just a one-dimensional one trait. stock character. Yeah. yeah, they have one trait, one thing about them. But they all work together in a really fun, cool way. Yeah. Uh, and as a kid, you know, the, it's like, oh, he's cool because of this. Oh, he's cool because of that. Oh, he's cool yeah. because of that. Like mm-hmm. the same thing with Indiana Jones. And you the, can use it to typecast your friends or yourself. Yeah. Or yeah. Um, the th- yeah, and the same with Indiana Jones. With the. Uh, 
the last one, the Grail. Mm-hmm. Not the Grail. Yeah, it was the Grail. Well, the last good one. Yeah, the Last Crusade. But the Last Crusade, it's really fun. It's one dimensional with Indiana Jones's character and Sean Connery's character, mm-hmm. but it's still a really fun interplay with son and dad. I watched that recently, and I honestly think it might be one of Sean Connery's best performances. Oh, oh, I think it is. It's his best performance. Yeah, yeah. he's really he's perfect as Indiana Jones's dad. It's like he has that sort of regalness in that first scene where he's in the Grail Diary. Yeah, but then he also so it's plays the doofusy, dorky, airheaded, and it's exactly how this movie failed with one of its major characters because typically there's a consistency. So Spielberg can do that with a character like. Sean Connery's mm-hmm. Indiana Jones's dad, and it still feel like the same character. Right. But there was a big, a major misstep in this movie in that one, actually the major villain, starts out one way, and then he kind of goes another way, and it feels really inconsistent, like he's not the same character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird. Well, the thing about Sean Connery in that movie... And, it should have cast, he should have cast Sean Connery as Ogden Morrow. Yeah, he probably yeah. should have, but I think Sean Connery's retired, maybe? He is. Um, he retired after the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> I guess he just wanted to go out on a high note. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, the thing that's illuminating about Sean Connery versus the villain, since you brought it up, Brandon, is that Sean Connery in that movie is in Last Crusade is pretty goofy dad character, but then he has these moments, like when he slaps him for blasphemy, Oh yeah, where he just summons this real kind of authority and you feel it. And it does, the performance all feels of a piece. It feels like one character yes. that you can believe in, even though it's kind yeah. of a cartoonish conceit for a character. Yeah, when he's scooting the seagulls with his yeah. uh, umbrella. <laughs> That's a... Yeah. yeah, but That's it all Sean works. Connery's finest moment right. in all of acting right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he gets his little say in at the end when he brings up the fact that he was named after the dog. Yeah, no, it's all. <laughs> you were named after the dog. <laughs> when I think about Spiel, well, I'll finish the one point, which is that this villain, they actually try and give him some dignity at the very end. And you can feel Spielberg saying, eh, we need to give this guy some dignity. So they actually give him a moment. I guess I can spoil it. We're going to do spoilers in this, folks, if you're not used to that and on the booking already. He's, he comes and he's going to shoot Wade Watts and Wade's just found the egg and won the game and the villain has a moment where you just like linger on his face and you see, oh, he gets it. This is kind of cool, like whatever. It's, a, it's, it's it's giving the villain back some dignity. But that's right after they literally have a scene where the villain gets uh, kicked in the testicles. And it just doesn't feel like the same movie, the same performance, yeah, it's the same. Really weird. And it character. had a whole cartoonish chase where nobody can this, get these people. Yeah. And... It's just, it's, they can send drones. I mean, it's just a lot of dumb. They can send drones yeah. to go blow up a, a stack of trailers. They can't find this really distinctive looking RV. Yeah. And then when they do, they can't. They have their big Hummers and they can't knock it off the road yeah. or they can't do anything. They can't take a drone and plant a bomb on it. Yeah. They can't. The bad guys in this movie are like Home Alone villains or something. Yeah, right? they're that like ineffectual. Yeah, they are kind of like the Sticky Bandit. Right. They're scary just long enough the until the kill- kids do something cool and defeat them every time. And it's. Yeah. Which, I mean, I don't. The Goonies villains are kind of that way. They are, but it works in the Goonies because that's the tone of that right. story. Yeah. These villains are kind of supposed to be so, scary in their yeah, way. Yeah, because the tone of this story is what they were wanting to do is they were wanting to convince you that there was a Matrix-style world outside of the Matrix Mm -hmm. that was depressing and scary to live in with these loyalty farms or whatever they're called. Mm -hmm. And with this company, corporation, that's trying to take over the world and kind of has, and it's this scary dictatorship. 
and that there's a rebellion that's worth being a part of. And so they set that background and I was kind of excited. I'm like, oh, this is going to kind of be cool. It's going to be like um, Children of Men, you mm-hmm. know, that whole, there's high stakes involved. Have you seen Children of Men? Yeah. Do you I like Children of Men? That's great. That's great. Yeah. yeah. But in, but the problem is, is like in Children of Men, with just a few scenes, they manage to convince you that this world is as horrible as it is. Mm. And it's the visuals of like the abandoned buildings and the people being just shuffled off like cattle and stuff in that movie. Yeah. And you you get this fully realized world and we're like, yeah, okay, there's stakes involved here or, or with uh, the Matrix, mm-hmm. you know, you've realized that there's something at stake here, but with this world, just it's, it's so thin. And in the book, it's even thinner. Quite get, You're not quite convinced that whatever has happened before this point was bad enough to get us here. I you're was, not convinced that the corporation, I, is it IOI, yeah. is bad enough to actually be the threat they are. Well, there's weird things like there. you see a pizza being delivered by drone in yeah. the very first scene of the movie. And it's like, okay, I guess this city actually is kind of cool. You can get pizza delivered. Like there's just yeah. this weird inconsistency. You never get that one solid brush stroke that just tells you this is exactly what this world's like. This is what the stakes are. This is are. how bad it is. Instead, you just get some exposition. I was really, yeah, I was really counting on, you know, from the book, Wade infiltrates IOI headquarters and gets himself in debt slavery or whatever. And right. Does some awesome things to take down whatever. I was, I was expecting the whole weight of the movie to hinge on that on those dramatic points. And I, the more the trailer started to show, the more I thought, oh, they, did they take that whole thing out? Because mm-hmm. I thought that that would, that would be the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really made it, it be like- home. And, and, and then they, they flipped it over and, let, and gave some of that work to Artemis. It didn't never do felt, the work. You didn't feel the risk. Yeah. It, to be it, fair, it didn't feel like you were invading the Death Star. No, it Which didn't. is what I think it was supposed to feel like. It didn't. I thought that the cubes that they were worked in were scary. And the way that she was kind of chained, her mask was yeah, stuck on. Yeah, she couldn't on. get it off. That was effectively That's fine, but depressing. the whole movie had those little small details, but it never congealed into... No, it didn't. And so that's why I think that what this movie... it was So they were trying to add this rebellion. They saw... The fact that this movie was just basically a ripoff of The Matrix. Mm. And we're tr- The Matrix meets Willy Wonka, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and But they realized, uh, so Spielberg being smart and his screenwriters being smart, realized they needed to add some more stakes. Mm-hmm. There needed to be some flesh to the world outside of the Oasis. And they needed to not take, they needed to not just assume that it, the virtual reality world was okay. Like this, this was a good thing to lose yourself in the virtual reality, right? which is something the book just sort of elides. It just kind of glides over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just, it's, it's pretty clear. Klein thinks this is actually really cool. Yeah. Right. And so it wants to deal with, the, it wants to deal with all the issues the book should have dealt with. It's equally clear that Spielberg doesn't think it's cool and that he has an ambiguous at best relationship with the fact that he's responsible for creating yeah. kind of this world and he wants to. But that's exactly what any talk responsible it. storyteller is going to feel. Right, is the conflict there? Mm-hmm. Right, and so you, if the the universe that you create has to be fully realized, and that's the difficulty with sci-fi is if you don't have that fully realized world, all it becomes is just a very cheap, thin palette to sort of do some drawings on. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think Ernest Klein has done. And and I do think he's a narcissist. And I do think the story is very narcissistic in the sense that all he wanted to do, and you lose it in this book because Spielberg tries, he has to appeal more to us mm-hmm. by giving us more pop culture. At least the one thing that does work in the book is the fact that it's all about Halliday and Halliday's a stand-in for Ernest Klein. Mm-hmm. 
in Ernest mm-hmm. Klein's obsession with the 80s. So that that deep trivia that's essential to how difficult the egg hunt is in the book works in mm-hmm. the book. As much as I don't like it, it actually, that part works. None of the puzzles in the movie are plausible. Like All there's the, no way that you yeah. and me and Jake, there's no way we wouldn't figure out those puzzles yeah. if we were. Right. Everybody knows that Stephen King hated The Shining. Yeah, I mean, that's yep. just, yeah, yeah. There was nothing surprising about any of those puzzles. It was mm-hmm. just really disappointing. And so they changed that element, lost that. So the one thing that kind of worked about the book, because it was the one real reflection of Ernest Klein's narcissism Mm -hmm. (laughs) fell apart in the movie when Spielberg tried to fix it and so you can feel Spielberg trying to fix a lot of stuff he was trying to fix it and I respect him for that he realized that he was handed a bad deck of cards here Mm -hmm. it's not how he acted no I mean, I know you have he maybe, maybe PR he pushes and yeah. crap like that. They sure made it sound like he he wanted this project. He picked this project. Yeah, he was excited about this project. And it could have just been a misstep on his part. Then it could be. I tend to think he's. I mean, Spielberg is nothing if not a great businessman. He's the kind of person if he's doing a project, he's going to talk it up. I mean, yeah, but he's also a great businessman, and he doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. Yeah, yeah. I I think he probably really did. What I I got the sense just in reading interviews with him that he actually thought that the book was a cool world that he really wanted to deal with the dilemma of virtual reality that he does think this is basically the future like he sees this as being not in his lifetime maybe not even in our lifetime but he sees it as being a a real basically thing which is interesting i don't know what i think about that but i think spielberg actually does think he's giving you a plausible version of what which you know what 20 years ago it would have been Mm -hmm. but we actually have virtual reality that's kind of that's and nobody's nobody cares right google gives out you know they do their google glass nobody Mm -hmm. cares to be fair to spielberg he sure did nail the predictions on minority or minority report that's a pretty amazing movie to watch minority report in some ways became a self-fulfilling prophecy right Mm -hmm. you know yeah and i think you know maybe it's possible i don't know this is kind of inceptiony but it's possible that maybe maybe he just wanted to sabotage the appeal of That's a dumb thing. He, he intentionally made a bad movie. That's a that's a good uh, that's a good. Movie. That's brilliant. Yeah, that's probably what he's doing. Well, I want to come back to what the idea of, and I'm I'm sorry, folks. It, this is a late recorded after a long day podcast, so we might be a little bit all over the place, but hopefully we'll get everything covered here. I want to come back to the idea of what actually makes the Spielberg magic because I think Jake was onto it when he said those. What did you say? You said the details or something yeah, like that. It's the detail. It's or at least in his day, he had a real knack for including just the right little details that just went the extra mile Yeah, to either make things feel real or suspenseful or yep. tangible or I think relatable. the word, I think maybe the real word is, what did you say? Was Did you say the right word, the last one? What tangible. You, what, was the, what, did you, what was the last word you said when I started to talk? Tangible. Did you say relatable? <laughs> yes, I did okay. say relatable. Um, yeah, I think what it actually is, is simply maybe put is relatable. Mm-hmm. Indiana Jones punches out a Nazi so he can steal his disguise, which is something we've seen in a million movies. Steven Spielberg goes the extra mile and thinks, gee, if you did that, maybe the jacket wouldn't fit. Like you might not necessarily punch the first guy you punch out to steal his costume so you can sneak into the thing. That that's the kind of detail that Spielberg in his heyday it's was funny always. Joke. It's a funny joke, yeah. but it's also just like it suddenly makes Harrison Ford into more of a human being and less of yes. an unrelatable hero god character. And the movie is just full of things like that. Well, uh, Indiana Jones is just like when we were talking about it earlier, and I started to go talk about Disney World. It feels just like you're on some kind of 
thrill ride at a theme park or something yeah, like that. Right. And there are always those moments. He's always going to, and it's got these little motifs that, oh, his hat's going to fall off and, oh, he's going to have to do something really risky to get it back. Mm. Oh, he's got to find a way to use that whip. Oh, they're going to be snakes and it's going to be, you know. Yeah. And he doesn't like snakes. And I always, the one I always think of, this isn't necessarily relatable, but it's just going the extra mile. The crate that the Ark of the Covenant is held on is has a, the Nazi insignia, you know, the and it burns out. It burns off. Yep. And it's just like, what other filmmaker would think to just include that little It's just the detail moment. that gives you that sense that, whoa, there are otherly powers at work here and there's a there's good and evil and yep. mm-hmm. and that's yeah it's just those kinds of things that that really and it is in yeah it's in all the best of his movies yeah I mean, in it's, Jurassic it's, Park it's the water trembling yeah you know, the, you know the T-Rex is yeah approaching. that the water trembling makes that whole scene I mean the T-Rex is terrifying thing from my childhood but the, what makes that scene is the anticipation of the water the trembling build. yeah the build up and then the door handle turning with the right. velociraptors in the kitchen it's yeah the door handle it's it's Elliot using Reese's pieces in in ET you know a candy that I remember that I liked in my childhood that I haven't eaten since then probably it's yeah. it's the Star Wars toys in ET it's just yeah it's it's, it's the certain toys that are either yeah. in the closet with ET or the wig or the yeah. the little action figures and that suddenly just rocket you back to your own childhood and place you in that time or even if it's not your childhood it places you in Steven Spielberg's childhood and makes you so you can relate very to the story sp- yeah specific yeah. concrete details so how does it work in jaws in jaws it is well, for one thing, it's the horror of the the skinny dipper drowning at the beginning and saying, help me, help me. And it's just, it goes on forever. And it's done in a really relatably horrifying way. The child getting eaten. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that skinny dipper says things like, it hurts. Like who thinks to, like Spielberg's actually understanding her pain and making it terrifying in a way that it really would be for a person getting pulled under by a shark. It's things like that. It's the... Yeah. It, well, and it's not so much that it's like realistic in the somebody would actually say that sense it's just the he's storytelling he's giving you yeah, an, an emotional or a narrative hook yeah whether it's visual or audio or he's just whatever. Go, it's just that again going that extra mile and yeah. and you would see a lot of people would see it as being over the top but he's just doing just a little bit extra work for you mm-hmm. it's what we expect from good storytellers we've talked about it before yeah how some people lack it yeah like the ability yes but, we have <laughs> I mean, but, but it's what we like in people like Steinbeck, for example. Yeah, There's just a generous well, wealth of detail. I think it's what you see in every good storyteller. Anybody who has the ability to tell a story, that's just like, uh, we're going to see it with Homer. Wine, dark sea. Athena's gray eyes. Um, yeah, the, the when we talk about the Odyssey, I mean, we'll get to it, but the wealth of specific, relatable human detail, what I actually thought yeah. when I was reading Homer is, wow, this guy was actually doing what Spielberg and some of these guys exactly. do. It's just, you know, it's it's necessary to that years. sort of story. Yeah. You have to have those things that can make it, the word tangible is also mm-hmm. one of the right, is a right word too. Yeah. You want it to be tangible. You want to be able to feel this world, like in, but you want to be, so I don't know, with the wine dark sea, there's just a whole vivid imagery that comes up with that. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite details of all literary history it's just oh yeah i love the wine all, yeah, yeah it's just beautiful yeah as wine is but it's also <laughs> the danger the blood to it and it's just all so many imageries that come up just because of that one detail and so right. if you're thinking about these things in spielberg it's the same it, yeah. it kind of works like metaphor symbol stuff like that but which is why the two things that i latched on to the movie 
that they're not plot. I'm a pretty plot oriented guy, but the two things that I latched onto that I really that I liked, mm-hmm. and they weren't even that well done, you know. But it was just like these, this is the closest it gets to kind of recreating that, you know, mm-hmm. that the Zimicus Cube thing where, and it was mm-hmm. just the excuse to use the music mm-hmm. as things started rewinding. That music is, I mean, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Back to the Future is awesome. Man. Back to the Future is awesome. <laughs> um, they hold up. Do they? I haven't seen them in a long time. Yeah. I saw the Western one. I didn't really oh, the think first that one. one held the first one holds up. The first one is pretty great. Yeah. I've seen them all. I saw the rest of them bum, recently. Bum, is what I meant. Yeah. Um, well, as somebody that grew up watching The Shining, that the so spoiler alert. I've never seen The Shining. Shining. So maybe I, I hadn't seen it. Neither one of you guys has seen The yeah. Shining. So if you had seen the, and especially if you'd grown up with The Shining, that was a that was huh. pretty cool and evocative. That was they, a fun scene because it was fun to see H be so scared. That was right. And if you knew the movie and well, knew the beats of the, the movie like I did, it's like, okay, blood's going to come out of the elevator and now the old hag's going to be. So that was actually, you could feel Spielberg's love for Stanley Kubrick, love for The Shining, love for cinema in general. That scene actually, for a lot of people, maybe not for you guys specifically, but it, it did That the probably work. did the work for did most the work people. You're talking about. And if people thought it was special, it was because of that. Yeah, yeah. I think I can so. see that. That yeah. didn't do it for me, but that's just, you know. I'm guessing the car race the at the beginning was yeah. a reference to some car race game. Well, a lot of those vehicles. So let's see. You had Mad Max's car. You had Back to the Future car. What was H driving? Was H something from Tron? Wasn't it a Tron? That big H was in like a big oh H rig. Not um. She was in Tron. Yeah, she yeah, was definitely yeah, yeah. Tron. Sorry, H looked like a Mad Maxy type thing, but I don't know. Yeah, but I don't think it was Mad Max. I don't mm-hmm. know because Mad Max's actual car was in there, as was the old 1960s Batmobile. And I yeah, like the nod to the cool. Iron Giant, but I wish they had done more with it. Yeah. Well, Jake said after the movie that that was one of the places is where he was waiting for to feel some emotion because he loves the Iron Giant. Yeah, that's what, if you're going to put the Iron Giant in there. I, you're stupid not to well, make it emotional. Well, what, what, he turned it into a Terminator moment instead of uh, an Iron Giant moment. And I, I don't know, there's, a, there's a whole lot of capital, emotional capital with the Iron Giant there right. that you could have played with. Yeah, yeah you need to, you almost want to see him get blown to smithereens and then come back together like he does. I don't know what they would have done. Anything, um, some kind of Superman moment, right. you know? Like, and all he would have had to do is like have Mega Godzilla jump up into the air and you know open his mouth and strike the Superman pose as you dive into the mouth or something mm-hmm. like you know yeah. I mean, all you would have had to do is right <laughs> but but you know something like that that was just the yeah or, and get blown to bits and see pieces start to roll or what I don't know I don't know what it would have <laughs> been know, but there could have been either. something that, that was probably the dumbest idea or, or version of it but they they made so much of the Iron Giant being in it. Mm-hmm. That set up an expectation for paying off some of your Iron Giant nostalgia. Part of why we either consciously or subconsciously, subconsciously yeah. Iron Giant is because of Ready Player One for Sound of Sanity, Sanity at the Movies. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. I mean, I was happy. I'd never seen the Iron Giant. And- <laughs> The Iron Giant is by far the better movie. Of than Ready Player One. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Iron well, Iron Giant's just a I think awesome Iron Giant's movie. my my opinion on Iron Giant. Mm-hmm. One of the best kids movies. One of the best animated movies. I love it. Yeah. I think I need to let it settle before I decide it's, where it belongs in the canon or it's whatever. It's really good. It's it's right up there with Pixar's yeah, movies. It was really good. I cried. Best of Pixar. Oh uh-huh. yeah, I cry every time at that last every scene. Every time. Yeah. Superman. Super. <laughs> Going to cry now. I, I know. It's just you can think about it. Just think about it and get teary. I get misty every time I think about that yeah. whole thing. It's really great. Mm-hmm. You did a great job of telling that story. And every well, movie that has that trope wants to capture that. That movie moment. has a lot of the same kind of 
touch Spielberg. I mean, like a lot of what's to like about that movie. Are oh, it's got a lot of nods Spielberg-ian to Spielberg. Yeah, touches. yeah. Well, when we were ta- when we talked about when we did our sound and Sandy episode, and we talked about pure cinema and all the kind of uh, the ways the movie is visually storytelling. St- Steven Spielberg is a master of just evoking emotions with simple visual shot juxtaposition of doing things like we talked about in that episode that, of Sound of Sanity. So why didn't why didn't he do that? Why didn't we get that? I just don't think he cares. I mean, honestly, I just don't think he's interested. I think he wants to make the post. I think he wants. Now, to be clear, I did actually enjoy this movie, but I think but he. I, I think he I wants. I will to never th- watch the post. I don't care about the post. Well, he wants to make his prestige project. Yeah, he now. wants to make Munich. He wants to make Lincoln, <laughs> which I thought Lincoln was great, by the way. Yeah, I was. I was about to say. I've heard that. I liked Lincoln. as far as seeing Spielberg's genius, as far as a, like you were saying, the technicalities of mm-hmm. cinema. I've heard that Lincoln is what you should see. Yeah, it was really good. I thought it was good. Um, I don't know. I I just don't think I read something somewhere uh, in preparing for this that I thought was helpful, which is they said you can categorize all Spielberg movies based on when he actually became a father. They say everything changed and kind of old love the Spielberg that we love kind of started to go away around the time. I'm not sure exactly when he married What's-Her-Face, the lady from Temple of Doom, and started having kids, or whether maybe she even brought some kids with her. I don't know what his personal history is. But what they say is all of Steven Spielberg's early movies are about his childhood and him processing his childhood. So whether it's E.T. or Indiana Jones, whether it's him pretending to be a hero or him pretending to be just saying what it's like to be a kid, that's all his early movies. And then at a certain point, all his movies become about being a father. So even Jurassic Park is... yeah. Alan Grant. Alan Grant is a father. So Ready Player One is kind of by that standard. I haven't actually thought it through. War of the Worlds is about Tom Cruise being a father. Right. Minority Report is all about fathers and disappearing kids. And it's all filtered yep. through. Yeah. If there's any kind of emotional anchor to the movie, it's parenthood. Ready Player One doesn't have that, actually. So maybe there just wasn't that emotional hook that Spielberg actually cared about. Insofar as he does... The Oasis to... and Halliday are the father of that. Right. And that's where you can tell emotion. Uh, Spielberg's heart kind of is like he yeah. gives time and space to the scenes with uh, that Mark Rylance guy with Halliday. Well, he I'm, really likes Mark Rylance. Yeah, he's he always, worked with him a lot. Yeah, but you could, yeah, that is the story he wanted to tell, and he did a good job. Yeah, yeah, he was probably. Uh, I I thought Artemis and Wade were were good characters mm-hmm. or good, well acted at least. Right. No, I think but they were. Mark Rylance kind of stole the show as an actor. Yeah, yeah, he was great. He did a good job, and he if there was any emotion, actual emotion in the movie, it did come from him. Except yeah, which was awesome and amazing because he was just this autistic. Right. He really yeah. just straight up, because I don't think the book actually comes out and says that he's autistic, does it? It actually says he had, he has had Asperger's. Oh, does Asperger's. it? Okay. I'm yeah. pretty sure it put, him, it actually that, put yeah. him on the spectrum. Did it? Okay. And so I wasn't sure how literally put him on the spectrum. The movie did. Whether the book yeah. did or not, the movie just said. So what? he was just this, as- oh, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, was, oh, uh, you uh, I had finished my point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I was about to say. Well, I guess Jake's led me into my, the one thing I want to defend and the one thing that I did like about the movie that basically made the movie for me is I thought thought that Wade and Artemis were a cute couple, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Like, yeah. it was shallow. There wasn't anything particularly crazily memorable about it. But I thought the little love story and the two characters were just played in a attractive, humane, you know, it's just a nice little thing. It was, I don't need to like own the Blu-ray and watch it over and over again. But insofar as I liked the movie, it was because I thought Wade and Artemis <laughs> basically 
were worked. fun. Worked, yeah. And I didn't think they worked in the book. I hated Artemis in the book. She was so clearly wish fulfillment. She gets all my references. Like we made fun of in the episode. That's like why she's cool. The movie went out of its way to try and fix that and not make her just uh, wish fulfillment, um, at least not as explicitly. Narcissistic? Yeah, it's not as narcissistic. It, you know, if she is a prize to be one, then it's, it's more of a hero's journey function than it is a what's right, a character that will make us feel good as lame males in our mommy's basement kind of thing. I agree. And even the CGI was pretty good with them. Yeah. It yeah. looked, I was engaged with their looks. And I was, I liked the actors. I liked her, especially outside of, you know, her normal form as Samantha. I thought they did a nice job with the birthmark. There's a moment where her avatar has the birthmark, which wasn't emotional, but it came the closest that anything, just about anything in the movie did to having a little bit of emotional punch to it. I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it. There's not much to defend about it unless you guys want to attack it. And I'm not going to attack defend it. it I, I agree. I, I just thought it was nice. It was nice. Yeah. Um, and it worked for me well enough that I think I liked the movie a little bit better than you guys did, but definitely better than Brandon well, did. But I mean, I liked, like I said, I liked aspects of the movie. Mm-hmm. I overall didn't like the movie, <laughs> but that, I, that, that can happen. So I liked their characters. I guess that was enough for me to give it a thumbs up. Like, okay. it's a nice story, a nice little, I, I hate always saying hero's journey, but, you know, he, he yeah. defeated the bad guys. He got the girl. There was some fun special effects. The girl and the guy were attractive performers that did a good job bringing a little emotion to a silly story. Mark Ryland did a good job as making the arc of Holiday believable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like the set pieces. I think maybe I liked the set pieces better than you guys did. I actually liked the race. It seemed like our, the crowd that we went and saw it with, it seemed like everybody was grumpy about the race afterwards. I thought the race was cool. I didn't like the race. You didn't like the race? Mm. You just thought it was lame? I didn't like the race because they replaced it with one of the actual best parts of the book. I agree with you that that was dumb to lose that. from the. That was one of the better the, parts of the book. The Dungeon and the Dragon. I was actually looking forward to seeing that Skeleton King and yeah, the Dungeon and Dragon yeah. against yeah. each other. That it was pretty cool. good. Yeah. yeah. So. I mean, that's... Uh, that's why I was grumpy about it. I Well, the other thing, and we talked about this, and you made the point that if Jurassic World hadn't come out, there would have been, the T-Rex would have paid off more in that race. We just had a movie that in Jurassic World that the one scene everybody remembers from that is the T-Rex is let out of its paddock and we have this wish fulfillment like nostalgic we hear that t-rex roar we see the t-rex then he fights the villain dinosaur and it's just like what every little boy imagined with his action figures when he bought the jurassic park or when jurassic park was first out so uh yeah we we actually had that moment so then seeing the same t-rex with the same roar wasn't as special in um in ready player one yeah yeah it's just little things like that i'm glad you remind me of the batmobile that was pretty fun the batmobile was fun the adam west the 1960s batmobile was that in there yeah (laughs) yeah Hovering over Somebody the had it in the chase or in the race scene. I think uh, got, it, King Kong. It was King Kong yeah. knocked it off or something maybe. But um, yeah. so there were fun stuff. And I bet if I did see the movie again, which I don't have any burning desire more. to do so, but I think there's probably a lot of fun little details that w- it would be fun to watch again. And to me, what you like, what I, what you love about Spielberg is he's gonna. There may be lots of details mm-hmm. that you miss or whatever. I don't know. I don't care. But he's gonna make sure that you he draws your attention to the one mm-hmm. that's gonna really matter. Mm-hmm. Or, it just wasn't that for me. But maybe the maybe the shining was that for everybody else. And so maybe I'm just wrong or I just don't have the context. But yeah, yeah, it could be. I don't know. But um, it just seems like it's sort of like, you know, what I said 
earlier, which is like you, in order to appreciate the the references, you're gonna have to be like Wade Watts and get it on Blu-ray and go frame by frame. But there were some, and maybe there's things. an Easter egg in there. Yeah, yeah. probably. If you can win a billion dollars. When maybe if Spielberg's dead and you can win his fortune. <laughs> the like the guy suddenly does Gundam at a certain point. Yeah, he's I, yeah. Might have been a big deal for somebody, not for me at all. I don't really even know exactly what Gundam is. What I don't is either. Gundam? Um, Gundam Wing. I mean, it's what Toshi or Itchy or whatever that guy's. It's what he. Dido. Dido. Yeah. Thank oh, you. Yeah. It's the form that he takes when he fights Mechagodzilla. But if the, like the classic Spielberg would have set up that that was a thing and let us know about it and made us anticipate it and saliv- salivate for it, and then it would happen and it would be like, oh, yeah, and it would be so cool. Mm-hmm. This Spielberg is just like, okay, Here there's another goes. thing. I can tell my animators to do it, and I guess the kids will think it's cool. Yeah, but that's where... So the the whole so I'm with you that the love story the characters are good and I was on board and was hopeful with the rebellion. Mm-hmm. But the whole third act of this movie just seemed to kind of fall apart. It lost it lost steam. Like none of the stakes that it had tried to set up worked out. Well, the book didn't have any stakes because they were at Ogden's house, Ogden Morrow's house, and no bad guys in the real world were after them. Yeah, but this one kind of just kind of so even they tried to solve that problem. You're saying you don't think they were? No, successful. I don't think they succeeded. In the one place they did, they still had it blow up, but they didn't have anybody die. Yeah. And the book actually had somebody die. Yeah, that's true. So mm-hmm. even that, the book did that better. Well, the other old, the other thing about classic Spielberg is that he was he had a dark streak which he just doesn't have anymore. Yeah. Like he he wasn't gonna kill one of those kids. Like yeah. old Spielberg probably doesn't kill a kid because he's sentimental, but he's also the guy that made Temple of Doom and made Razor's Razor of the Lost Ark. Which you have, if you haven't seen that movie for a while, folks, it's way darker and more violent than you you always. That's one of those movies I always forget, and then I watch it and I'm like, oh, they're just bashing people over the head in this bar. Yeah, and the bar coming out of their mouth. One of those really, things that you really. Yeah. It would get an R rating today, I would think, but yeah. um, let alone the heads exploding and all that stuff that everybody loves. But um, what was yeah, my so oh, the third act. Yeah, it's just there weren't. Uh, you never had it. You never felt like anybody was in danger. The villains were kind of home alone villains, yeah. and um, and it didn't have like the Inception risk going yeah. on. So it was just I don't know. I was disappointed. I was dis- I didn't like the third act of the book either. But they set it up and they tried to fix all the problems, and then it just. I think the book's arc is better. The book's arc is better. That's what I'm... I I think I... I'm coming to the conclusion that the arc of the book is better. In terms of, I, I may have to disagree with you there, but what do you what do you, what do you mean exactly? Um, if if the second act is uh, Wade has to infiltrate IOI because they've got a lockdown on everything. Mm. Only thing that he can do is basically self sacrificially in the real world put himself into a slave camp, yeah, and set up a bomb in the oasis that he hopes goes off and have to have some Indiana Jones style escape from there. And then they go off to Agmaro's place and they gather everybody together. The bomb better go off. Then they have the fight and people are, everybody's dying and they still have to get in and they still have to pull it off. And then he pulls the, you know, the bomb that blows everything up and everybody dies anyway, except Wade's got his extra life. Did he know it was an extra life? No. I when you describe it that way, it sounds cool, but the book is so poorly done that I just never felt. I think it's just yeah, it's just plot that does work better. Like I don't like him infiltrating IOH in the book because it's pathetic. Like his plan, his plan works perfectly, goes off without a hitch. Yeah, no, but just as a plot point, I I get what you're saying. So here's the thing: plot point, but it's so. 
I would. I'm not saying that the, the book, book is better. I would I'm like the Wade Watts the, of the movie doing that. Yes. Yeah. Because I think the Wade Watts of the movie is more heroic than the Wade Watts of the book. The Wade Watts of the book, he only cares about himself. He's like a stand-in for Ernest Klein. He's mm-hmm. just he's obsessed with his winning this prize, his learning. So he's never. It's even unbelievable that he learns to care about anyone else. Really, his his transformation isn't as good as the Wade Watts of the movie. Yeah. He's not a hero like the Wade Watts of this movie was. Not the it, Yeah, I'm not saying that I want a more faithful adaptation I know. in terms of characterization. I'm just saying in terms of arc in maintaining some kind of drama and suspense well, that that could really work and drive that third act. I'm actually and just let the third act all live in the oasis. I like them I'm actually not, agreeing with you. I don't agree so. that I like there being real rewards real world stakes. I don't like them going to Ogden Morrow's house and being in fancy things. I think the book, I think they did right to change that in the movie and have them be in a crappy old van being chased. That was not well done in the movie, but I think that's a better conceit for the end. <laughs> yeah, I don't think well, you if have you kill a, If you kill a kid in act two and there are real world stakes and Ogden Morrow ends up being able to save four out of five of them for your final battle in the Oasis, it's still going to feel like there are real world stakes. Yeah, that's possible. Or you could even still have that last real world chase scene in the bus and still have what Jake was wanting too. The infiltration. The Ogden Morrow is not necessary to that arc. Yeah. Yeah. I liked introducing... Basically, what's necessary to that arc is that, and it's believable with the movie that Wade wants, because he was the one who wanted to do it. Right. He would have done it, sacrificed himself. Yes. But probably the problem Spielberg saw was that the way the movie had gone, since they knew who he was, they were going to find out who he was and they would have probably just killed him. Right. Instead of actually putting him in. In the camp. In a holding cell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was something that, that was an inconsistency they were going to have to deal with. If they could have figured out how to do it, I do think that would have been a better story. Yes. Because if it all falls apart and then I think they realized it fell apart and they're like, we don't know what to do now. They weren't going to take the time to set up and let the movie lapse over the length of time that the book lapses where he's going to be by himself and able to... They did the whole facial recognition thing for one. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So a lot of things they just said they did. Yeah, they did actually cut back on a lot of the time too. This all happened really fast. Well, and it all happened in Columbus too, which was weird. Like, oh, I guess everybody important just lives in this one town. Like they almost should have made it that the rest of the world was blown up or something if they, it felt weird, awfully convenient, but they didn't really solve that. So yeah, so it's weird. So in changing, in trying to fix the book, they took away the things that actually kind of worked Mm -hmm. and didn't fix... But in fixing it, they also showed the. When both the, the book, book and the general. movie you have the problem that IOH is lame and, com- and completely ineffective, and like when Artemis in the movie, she's like hiding behind the guy's couch, and there's no particular tension, and then she yeah. just like yeah. goes out the door, and walks and out the door, while yeah. they're looking the other door. There's just like I'm a sucker for scenes like that in most movies, and my heart will be in my throat if if someone's like in an office and they have to hide because they're not supposed to be there or something. I find that to be one of the most tense. Yeah, it's terrifying. Things in a movie, easy to relate to. You know, we've all had that moment where we're doing something we're not supposed to and we might get caught, but this movie didn't have any of that tension, so. No, it was all gone. Yeah. And then, so all you're left with is this thinly bandwidth wars and all these things that you're supposed to believe build this world for you. They just, it doesn't do it. Yeah. One thing I was saying earlier was that what this made me appreciate more was the Star Wars universe mm-hmm. because... Jake made the point, 
as the villainous prosecutor, but it was still a good point that George Lucas had a fully realized universe. Mm -hmm. And this, I was thinking more about that. And then, which helped me realize what I didn't like about the movie. You were the villainous prosecutor, by the way. I was the villainous prosecutor. He was the I was the villainous yeah. defense. <laughs> I was the villainous prosecutor. I don't know. I was know. the sleazeball defense attorney. He was Atticus Finch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The good guy. <laughs> per Jake, he was definitely Atticus yeah. Finch. <laughs> he was definitely Atticus Finch. Um. But yeah, Star Wars, it's a fully realized universe, and it's a consistent universe. And the things that happen in that universe, the Jedi, the Sith... The councils, all these things that exist together in this world, it all makes sense and mm-hmm. it works. And it's a world that is fun to see stories happen in. I know on one of the Star Wars episode, the Star Wars episode mm-hmm. for the Christmas episode, I said the original trilogy was bad. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to take a step back You're and recanting. say maybe I just, it's not my cup of tea, mm-hmm. but I can appreciate the fact that those stories work in a way that Ernest Klein's story doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And so... Maybe eventually anything, you'll, you'll recant on Ready Player One and say no, it's your favorite novel. I don't think I ever Ernest will. Ernest Klein is the new Tolkien. So it's helpful. This is like a foil. So mm-hmm. it helped me realize that I was grumpy in, in an unfair way towards Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Helped me realize that, except my uh, recant. <laughs> Uh, it also helped me realize that The Last Jedi is a legitimately bad movie. Yeah. <laughs> Once you accept that Star Wars is worthy of being held to a standard, then The Last Jedi... Yeah, so if I want to be consistent with a lot of the things I was arguing in the trial, mm-hmm. this has helped me come to terms with some of this stuff, too. If Spielberg can be the Dickens, Dickens, in a lot of ways, was a sentimental, schmaltzy writer. Yeah. And so Star Wars has the freedom to be sentimental and schmaltzy. Fine. Pop art. Great. Have back Star Wars. It's not as bad as I claimed it was. I was just in a bad mood. <laughs> Return of the Jedi is bad. Return of the Jedi really is pretty, pretty boring. And Ready Player One is really bad. Well, but it's got that part where Chucky kills all those guys. <laughs> oh, man. It's uh, just like even stories that I'm not crazy about, like Fahrenheit 451, mm-hmm. at least that universe still also holds together. I don't know that it does. We're going to read that book, by the way, yeah. guys? We, I think it holds together to. more than this book yeah. does. Well, the thing about movies that's fascinating to me is that they adapt novels into movies because yeah. movies are two hours long. They're really pretty short and they have to yeah. work. If you're going to adapt a novel into a movie, you have to work in such broad <coughs> brush strokes. Bradbury Ready, wanted... Ready, you know, I was just going to say that we said from the beginning that Ready Player One was a book designed to be made into a movie. Yes, yeah. but the world isn't very... Consi- I guess my point is that... I guess what, when Brandon was talking about Star Wars, what I thought was, man... Star Wars doesn't really give you or show you a lot of its universe, but it just gives you some broad brush strokes so that you understand this is this, this is this, this is this. A few things are able to just beautifully stand in yeah. and then your imagination fills in the in the rest and suddenly you have a very lived in, real feeling universe. <laughs> you know what? There's just a real beauty I, and poetry you know and trick to that that Ready Player One doesn't pull off. It, it, they glaze over it at the beginning when mm-hmm. they're doing the setup, right? It's part of the exposition and it's yet a lot of visual exposition position going on where uh, this is the oasis and he's you know everybody's like you see the guy surfing and then later we're going to come back and we're going to sort of like zoom tour through the oasis and you remember in the book how he ends up having his own little fortress of solitude his own little planet and he's got his different little ships and things and and he goes to different planets to build up his whatever while he's trying to figure out the next thing. If they would have given us about 10 minutes of that, mm-hmm. it might have really helped the Oasis in the world. But then, I mean, I would have wanted to see 
I would have wanted to see an X-Wing and I would have wanted to see lightsabers and I would have wanted to see something else that was... You know, you're right, actually, though. What's missing from the movie is, like, they really needed to not start with an action scene. Like, Star Wars has that... It does start with an act, big action scene, the original New Hope, but then it's got this long, boring part where Luke is just a farmer on a desert planet. And that's what gives the whole Star Wars series this tactile... It's the brushstroke that helps grounded in something recognizable as reality if if suddenly if luke is not standing in the desert staring at twin suns Mm -hmm. what as the music swells that movie tanks nobody knows what star wars is nobody knows what star wars is today agreed that one scene is what made that whole movie and franchise yeah and ready player one like in the book it actually it grounds it by having it as as dumb and cliched as it is and it is dumb and cliched in the book but he has to go to school and there's this long section where like he's talking to bullies and it's really really lame and cliched but at least it grounds it gives you some time to breathe and spend time in the world in a way that's kind of concrete that you can relate to and then when he starts going on his adventures you just feel it that's what the movie really really needed didn't it just something whether it was his fortress of solitude or school or him just spending more time hanging out with h and their little whatever chat room uh, chat room thing instead of having the chat room be a big awesome iron giant facility just make it a recognizable like boys basement basement kind of place it just just needed a few things like that and spielberg's we're just talking this whole time about how he's what he's good at he's good at i think you're right that he just didn't care i just i think he when he was in his 30s and 40s making things like raiders of the lost ark i think he was making those movies for himself like he was this is the movie i want to (laughs) see I think now when he makes something like Ready Player One, he does care about it, but it's like, I'm going to make this one for the kids. And he tries to sort of think what people would like. I'm just speculating here. Who knows? Like the George Lucas episodes one, two, and three problem. Yeah. Like George Um, Lucas obviously isn't interested in seeing big action scenes, but he hands them over to his special effects guys and he does the things he's interested in, which in his case was like the Senate and it's kind of the geopolitical situation of Star Wars, which was weird, weird, but I don't know. I thought it was kind of cool, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you're right. What this movie was missing was just a sense of time, that time was passing and that this world actually existed and that he had to go to school, that he had friends and that he had to fit this. He had to, I mean, part of really part of the coolness of that book early on is he's this absolutely normal Mm -hmm. dweeb and nobody in in his classes would guess that he was Parsifal. Yeah, he was supposed to be, uh, what's his name from Willy Wonka, Charlie? Yeah, and this he's just already in the race. And I mean, Spielberg does, he can't help but be better than, he's a talented guy. So the little bits that he does give us, like his aunt and his uncle and his life in the trailers, they aren't bad in the way that they're done. I mean... They're good, they're, but it's but not enough. The aunt actually has a lot more sympathy than Ernest Cline was prepared to give her in the book just by hiring a sympathetic performer. It's nothing particularly <laughs> special about it, but it's just no, Spielberg's right. a talented guy. But I think that is... Jake's right. I think that that's really what's one of the big things that was missing. Mm-hmm. I wanted there to be the school. Yeah, I missed the school. I wanted there to be this sense that he was just a normal kid that happened to be in this adventure. So there's a... Any of you guys heard of Troll Hunters? Yes, I'm familiar with it. As a, On Netflix, it. yeah. it's a Guillermo del Toro yeah. series. No. It's like an animated thing, yeah. like a kid thing. It's decent, yeah. but it, it's more like that. It's mm-hmm. there at school, but then there's this adventure happening outside. So. Well, you think in, in episode one, as terrible as that movie is, think about the pod race. We spend all this time, like, here's the track, 
Here's the crowd. Here's the dust. Here's the people showing up. Here's the guy, the flag bearers coming out. There's just all these things. George Lucas is actually really good for all his terribleness at just making a world feel like a real world. It's like we're not just going to cut straight to the race. Like we're going to have the stupid flag people walk out and the crowd will be cheering their favorites and, Mm -hmm. you know, people will be trash talking each other over by the stands. And that's what this this race and this movie didn't have any of that. You know, you just Mm -hmm. have to spend some time in some kind of a relatable reality to anchor these big fantasies and... Yeah, you want the world. So what it made me actually admire about Star Wars, to go back to that, mm-hmm. and a, something like Blade Runner yeah. or The Matrix, yeah. is how these small details, but also just how important it is for this world to be imagined mm-hmm. fully before you actually write anything about it. So you have to feel like this world exists. Right. And if you just are doing it quickly or you don't have the talent to do it, then it's going. the story is going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And I do think that, I don't think I really brought this up at all in the trial it probably would have helped me Hmm. i do think this is probably the biggest weakness one of the biggest weaknesses of this novel is it just fails to create a believable universe which according to c.s lewis is pretty essential so to bring him back in like we always do (laughs) (laughs) well we've spent a long time talking now talking about how dumb this movie is but i actually had a fun time with it i don't know why movie i was just in a good mood i was just happy to be seeing a movie with you guys and I don't know. I, I, I was just feeling forgiving that night. I, I I had fun taking my wife out. Yeah. She had yeah. a good time. Yeah. We had fun. Yeah. Um, I was sitting there all by myself with no wife, and I enjoyed the movie better than either one of you guys did. So what does that say about me? I don't know. Maybe losers need fantasy. You just have a, a broader ability to love the world, Nathan. <laughs> yeah. If there's one thing that people on the booking know, it's one thing I'm noted for. It's my broad ability to love the world. I don't know. I mean, honestly, folks, maybe I was just in a good mood. I really wanted to like the movie, and then I did. So maybe I'll hate it if I see it again. I wanted to like the movie, and I wanted to like it well enough to be tempted to see it again today or tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And... I knew coming out of it that I wasn't, I'm not, I mean, it might be fun. Like when we do Ready Player Two, we'll maybe rewatch it or yeah. I, yeah. I just, I don't have any desire to go out of my way to yeah. see it. I wouldn't again. go out of my way, but as a reference point, after seeing The Last Jedi, I got out of that movie and I just knew I never wanted to see it again. And I was sad. Like, oh, this is a Star Wars movie. It had some cool parts, but man, the propaganda is too much for me. I don't want to see it again. Black Panther, I actually liked it okay, but I did not ever need to see it again. And then I did see it again just to, you know, favor to a friend kind of thing. So bored through the whole thing. Just like did not care. Was not engaged at all. At all. Like life is short. I have work to do. I don't want to be watching Black Panther. Ready Player One to me was much more fun. And I would much rather see it again than either one of those two, just as a reference point. So I don't know what that says. Maybe when I see it, if I do see it again, I'll realize, oh, all your love, (laughs) your love for it was misplaced. And this is actually pretty stupid. And Jake and Brandon were right to not be as excited about it. But I don't have Infinity War, all my hopes and dreams rest on you. Yes. Infinity, oh yeah. Infinity War. That'll be good. Hopefully that'll blow all the things I just mentioned out of the water. I don't have those reference points. And one thing I did tell my wife in the car mm-hmm. is I think I could go the rest of my life without ever seeing that movie again. Ready Player One. Yeah, and not feeling bad about it. I have no desire to see it again. I, so. I don't, yeah, I don't know. What what could get me interested in, in watching it again is when somebody, when it comes out on Blu-ray or even before then and somebody cracks some kind of code and mm-hmm. there is an actual Easter egg hidden in the film and yes 
And it's actually all of those little scenes with details packed into them really matter. And it's really worth paying attention to. And there's a big, there are big payoffs and that'll be fun. If that, if, if that happens, then, then everything we we've, I've said tonight goes out the window. Oh yeah. Especially if I could win a trillion dollars. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But you know, whatever. I mean, Klein hit a Easter egg in his book and he gave away a DeLorean. Yes. I wouldn't be surprised if there was something. We did all sit through the credits to the very end, see if there was a credit cookie. I don't know whose fault that was. We really (laughs) really irritated (laughs) the cleaning staff. Yeah. The cleaning staff was standing there. uh, But we decided, somebody said they thought there was a credit cookie. And so we all decided to sit there like morons and wait for it. And then there was nothing. It was the longest credits. Yeah. There was a lot of credits. Yeah. It was the longest credits since the return of the king. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the return of the game. Those credits are long. Uh, well, those are credits like thank all the fans from the J.R. Tolkien Club or something like that. So they are yeah. long. But uh, all right. So the verdict is we all kind of agreed the movie wasn't everything that it could be. Brandon's a little bit on the grumpy side about it. I'm a little bit on the happy side. It might just be because of something I ate that agreed with me. Jake wanted to, wanted to feel the Spielberg magic and fall in love with the art of cinema again. And he didn't. Um, it's too bad. Which is too bad. And I'm not being sarcastic when I say that's what you wanted and that's what you didn't get. And it is too bad. Spielberg, why don't you want to make Spielberg movies anymore? I'll tell you what I'd like is to see not Spielberg, but somebody like Ryan Johnson, who did do a good job directing the heck out of that terrible Last Johnson, Do Ready Player 2. Somebody that's really wants to have fun in the world that enjoys the references in a way that Spielberg doesn't. Like yeah. somebody yeah. that's excited, like, oh, cool, I can have the Ninja Turtles do something. You know, some hey man, some yeah. would have made it the, the Ghostbusters. Ninja, I miss, I miss Ninja Turtles. Apparently, they were in there. Somebody was telling me they were in there. I think I saw them, but I thought they were Battletoads because I saw the Battletoads like nine times, and I think probably one of them was actually the Ninja Turtles. But but hey, apparently anything can get made into a movie nowadays. <laughs> Rampage. If they would have, yes. I wish they would have. I mean, if we would have gotten like a Bill Murray or Dan Aykroyd cameo or anything from. I was hoping for a Jack Nicholson cameo. I was hoping. I was too. I was hoping for a Jack Nicholson, even if it was like CGI. CGI Jack Nicholson, like exactly. I was thinking the same thing. I was really hoping that would happen. I was also hoping for a CGI Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones to pop up somewhere in in like an ad. Like that's the kind of thing that you could totally do. Mm -hmm. Is you could totally have a CGI. You could like those ads that were just like nondescript people that were with the futuristic stuff because everything's so 80s that you could have like you could have had Indiana Jones Michael Keaton's Batman you could have had Michael Keaton as Batman you could have had Jack Nicholson as the Joker right or in I mean you could have had anything you could have had yeah there's just so much you could have done yeah Give us uh, Ferris Bueller, for goodness sake, even. Well, what's absolutely clear is that Spielberg as long actually... As you're going to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> Get, give us Ali Sheedy. Now, yeah. I did read somewhere that The Breakfast Club is in that movie, and I didn't see him. So I actually do kind of want to watch the movie again just to catch all that stuff, because I think it would be fun. It would be like, I don't know where The Breakfast Club was, but apparently they're in there somewhere. Are they in there, or are they just referenced in that one scene? The thing I read made it sound like they're actually in there, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, I'm sure soon enough we'll have a whole list. Yeah, I'm sure. I want to, when I take over the ACES, I'll make uh, every school like the school in the Breakfast Club. Uh, yeah. Somebody that actually loves the era needs to do it. Somebody that's just like excited to, like, they, they could have even just done Superman and Batman and it wouldn't even have to be what? like a specific one, but just. You know who should do it? Who's that? The Duffer Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, you need. 
Theory. Yes. The reason why uh, Krennic is a weird character in the film is because he's a stand-in for Spielberg. Huh. He's a grumpy, technology and nerd-challenged guy that has the teams of young people helping him be cool in ways that he he's would, trying to he's, he's trying to be cool for the kids and he just can't do it. <laughs> and actually, he's selfishly motivated and is grumpy about this whole thing and just wants to seize in himself a desire to exploit it and destroy it and then comes to the end and can't pull the trigger and that's a good theory man that's the easter egg maybe i I, it was probably subconscious that's some good stuff there Plus, the sound went out in our screening, so we don't know what Krennic actually says to the woman when he gets like he's gets into the car handcuffed and yeah. he says something to his accomplice. And I figured it was probably just like the Scooby Doo. We would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those kids, but maybe it's maybe something, something really poignant. Given your, you have to let theory. us know. Yeah, let us write write us in, folks. All right, uh, Brandon. Um, phone home. Yeah. Does this movie get the LSOA, the coveted <sighs> Ogden LSOA? Mar- uh, 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 no. Uh, 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 George Lucas. Oh, man. Yeah, a guy that he stopped being this friends is, with. Yeah. This is good stuff. Yeah. This is better than the movie. <laughs> We're going to have to see it again so we can confirm your theory. I'll just let you guys tell me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, coveted LSOA, Brandon. No. Sounds like it's a big fat no. No, but if people want to see it, go ahead. For those who like this kind of thing, is this the kind of thing they'll like? Sure. If somebody thinks they're going to like this movie, will it? Yes, will like and I it? don't. As grumpy as I am, I don't hold it against you. So go see it. Uh, Jake, same questions. I think that if you're the kind of person who thinks you might like this movie, the only way to tell if you're going to like the movie is to watch it. To go see the movie. (laughs) So you should just do that. There's no reason not to. If you want to know content-wise, parents, they recreate a very famous moment from The Shining, and they do it more tastefully than The Shining does, but it does involve some partial nudity, as the PG-13 thing says. Surprising partial nudity, and then surprising there's some sensuality between uh, artemis and uh, what's his face that's that goes a it's, it's alluded to in the trailer and it it actually does go a little it, well it goes farther than that yes and then there's also possibility of the last scene being i didn't catch that yeah yeah it was could be you might be right i, just I think i think it. i'm right <laughs> i was pretty tired but yeah and then and then the zombie stuff is kind of gross too. If you're yeah. in, I mean, just in terms of yeah, there's some zombies. It, it wasn't anything that stuck out to me, but I'm pretty just seen a lot of zombies in my time. You don't like the zombies? It was gross. Yeah, it was gross. I thought they were like I thought they were fun, gross though, not like gross, gross. Uh, I'll give it a LSOA. I liked it. I thought I had fun with it. Be warned about the stuff we just warned you about two seconds ago. It's not a magical new Spielberg classic, and I am. It's too bad that it's not. It's too bad that he doesn't care. It's too bad they didn't just give it to J.J. Abrams or somebody that probably would have done a better job. Yeah, man, J.J. Abrams. He would. He may have done a better job. Uh, yeah. He probably. I mean, he would have actually tried to do it like <clears throat> Spielberg would have tried to have. Like people would have wanted Spielberg to have done it. Yeah. He would have tried mm-hmm. to. Right. I don't think he's usually very sophisticated or tasteful in the way that he no. apes his mentors, but somebody, you don't want Spielberg, you want somebody that worships Spielberg, and so J.J. Abrams does fit that mold. I don't know who else I would say should have directed it, maybe... Well, you already said Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson, actually, is who I think would have done a great job if he could keep his dumb politics out of nah, it. He would have done something stupid. He probably would have done something stupid, but... Um, Brad Bird might have had fun with it. Brad Bird, Brad yeah, Bird would have been... Brad Bird would have been great. Brad Bird would have been great. Brad Bird's weird philosophy that we talked about on the Sound of Sanity probably actually would have 
he would have been able really to do something well. interesting yeah, with, within this universe. Yeah. Like, what is the evil of, he would have delved into what makes Krennic Krennic and whether that's a, you know, there's something sympathetic about that. Uh, yeah, Brad Bird definitely should have done this. Maybe Ready Player Two will be a Brad Bird joint. Maybe. Probably not, though, but that's our it, recommendation. I think it should have been the Coen brothers. Yeah, the Coen <laughs> brothers would be great. <laughs> <laughs> what they should have done is hired the Wachowskis. Yeah, the Wachowski yeah, siblings. That's, that's it. The oh, girls. brother. All right, folks. Anything else to say about this film, Jake? No. Anything else to say about this film, Brandon? No, I'm done with it. <laughs> you don't have to think about Ready Player One, Brandon, for this is my gift to you. You can put Ready Player out of your mind for another couple of years now until Ready Player Two. He's going to ride it faster than that. Yeah, probably. <laughs> It'll come out next month. Yeah. I bet you there's a date, and I'm going to look it up right now. I bet you there is. He doesn't seem like the type that uh, labors over his well, craft. so much time getting every word. Yeah. <laughs> Joycean. <clears throat> Whoa. He ain't no Ishiguro. No, he ain't no Ishiguro. And hey, Ishiguro, here we come. <laughs> yeah. Brandon, the happier days are ahead. Hey, hey, whatever remains of them. Yeah. We got a date on Ready Player Two, Jake. Uh, this is just an interview from February where Klein's saying he's working on it, but that he's focused on Armada. Mm. Armada's already published, right? Yeah. It's being made into a movie already. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're not reading Armada. <laughs> You're putting your foot down, huh? <laughs> The Looking was written by Nathan Adams and produced by Brandon Chastine. Produced by me. Edited by Jacob Menzel. Performed by Nathan. Directed by Steven Spielberg himself, actually. Wow. Hey, Steven. Hey, St- <laughs> hey Brandon. <laughs> hey, it's George Lucas, too. Hey, guys. <laughs> Yo, Steven. <laughs> Hi, George. <laughs> Sorry for that falling out we had. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Hey, what everybody. was up with Ghost uh, Holiday? <laughs> I don't understand what the point was there at the end. I think in the part where the sound cut out, we found out something about that, maybe. I don't know. Well, maybe we did, but I think... Were we supposed to think he was a ghost? Like yeah, well, we were. I think we were supposed to think that his consciousness is... Inside the game? Like he's still alive somehow? Or was until he had peace of mind about the Oasis being oh, handed man. over. Who knows? Who knows? Good night. <laughs>